Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Going to space is the dream of many, although very few of us will make it. Now, if you're a billionaire, it's a different story. Over the weekend, did you watch Virgin Atlantic founder Richard Branson's flight to the edge of space? Next week, billionaire Jeff Bezos will also attempt to fly into space on his own spacecraft, his flight scheduled to coincide with the anniversary of Apollo 11's landing. And we can't forget about Tesla's Elon Musk, who has his eye on Mars. His company, SpaceX, has completed dozens of space flights. Today, where we live, we talk about the latest space race fueled by private companies. What does this mean for the rest of us? Colleen tweeted, it means we've got a tax code that allows people to acquire so much wealth, they actually have to leave the planet to spend it. Colleen writes, this is what we have instead of Medicare for all. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. I want to welcome to the show on Zoom, Marina Corin, who's staff writer at The Atlantic. Marina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also with us is Lisa Ruth Rand, Assistant Professor of History at Caltech. Lisa Ruth, welcome back. Thanks. Really happy to be here. So, Marina, I wanted to start with you. I think most of our listeners have heard of British billionaire Richard Branson, uh, a music executive. How do you get interested in spaceflight? Right. So Richard Branson became interested in spaceflight actually the same for the same reason that Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, the other space billionaires are interested, and a whole generation of people actually because of the moon landing. Um, Branson was actually um, hung over on the day of the moon landing in 1969. He had just turned 19 years old a couple days earlier and had celebrated accordingly. Um, but nevertheless, he was still completely riveted by the sight of Neil Armstrong walking on the surface of the moon. And he decided then and there that someday he himself would go to space. Um, and he he did that um, on Sunday. You know, he made his fortune with other uh, other businesses, not space related, but he made enough money to eventually make this dream a reality. Now, were you uh, watching Lisa Ruth? What was your reaction when uh, you saw this uh, space flight, the spacecraft uh, taking Richard Branson and a small crew uh, up into the edge of space? I was watching. I actually was watching the feed uh, that was provided by Virgin Galactic, which provided, I think, a really interesting take on the flight from the perspective internal to the company that was actually uh, undertaking this effort. So a lot of really um, kind of uh, celebrations of this major achievement, but also um, some uh, perhaps a little bit un-nuanced uh, approaches to thinking about this as a, as a colonization effort, as a first steps of, um, of a new kind of person being allowed to come go into outer space and shape what our activities are like up there. That in some ways is consistent with the way that spacefaring humanity has approached 
this particular kind of voyage, but also new in as much as this is a, a, a different kind of person um, making the trip. Although we have had uh, private space ventures for a long time, this is new in as much as we have uh, these hyper wealthy individuals building spaceships to fly themselves and to fly other rich people, uh, in this case, to the edges of outer space. I know I was looking up the feed as well on Sunday with my daughter and Marina. It definitely looked a lot different than what we may uh, might have expected when we were watching, you know, NASA shuttles uh, blasting off uh, into space. So when uh, these projects are more aligned with, uh, you know, human achievement and, and what this means for, for countries and science. So can you describe for listeners who uh, may not have been following Richard Branson's space flight, what it looked like and did he actually make it into space? Right. So this, yeah, this is very different from a shuttle launch. Um, and it's actually the way that Virgin Galactic flies is very different from the way that Blue Origin and SpaceX fly. So what Virgin Galactic does is it, it launches a, a giant plane that's carrying a smaller space plane. And to me, it looks like two dolphins carrying some other fish <laughs> in the middle. Um, that's going to sound weird for and for people who haven't seen it, but I highly go. I, rec I recommend checking that out. But basically, this giant plane carries this spacecraft to about fifty thousand feet in altitude, and then drops that spacecraft. And remember, inside that spacecraft on Sunday was Richard Branson and, and several other Virgin Galactic employees and, and pilots. And once that plane drops that spacecraft the spacecraft ignites its own engines and then can and then pushes itself even higher just past the edge of space so this is not exactly the traditional picture that people might have of rocket launches and it was not traditional on the ground either like lisa ruth said it was a party down there um you know this is in, in a way another one of branson's virgin branded companies and it's you know they had a bunch of music going they had stephen colbert host the the event um you don't really see that at, at a nasa launch because that's a, a government agency doing this type of work here you have a private business doing this kind of work and so they can kind of make it into you know like a, a pr event and Lucy, you asked whether Richard Branson even made it into space. And that's an interesting question, a bit of a fraught question, because people don't necessarily agree on where space begins. Some say it's just past 50 miles, which is where Richard Branson flew to. Jeff Bezos would tell you it's 62 miles above the Earth, which is where he's going to fly to. Um, so by some measures, Branson is an astronaut. By others, he's not. I mentioned uh, the purposes of science uh, just a bit ago. And so what is the purpose of Richard Branson going up into the space, the spacecraft and spending all of this money? Is it really just about a, a notch on his belt that he's the first billionaire to do so? Right. That's a good question. And so there was a science experiment on this flight on Sunday that one of the Virgin Galactic employees tended to in the few minutes of weightlessness that they experience. But what Virgin Galactic is doing is not primarily about science. It's about business. Um, Branson has wanted, long wanted to create the first commercial space line. And, um, you know, it, essentially about giving, paying customers joy rides to the edge of space and back. Um, and so for Branson on Sunday, this was essentially a joyride. 
Lisa Ruth, uh, when you hear uh, Marina break it down like that and your own observations, when you look at uh, the history of space exploration, uh, you know, I read that comment from one of our listeners on Twitter about this moment in time that we're in. You know, how does it feel to think that, again, uh, so many of us uh, remember as children that uh, just the allure of space and the um, admiration that we have uh, for scientists and astronauts who train a long time. Time, uh, to make it there. But now we've got billionaires like Richard Branson, <laughs> you know, doing these short flights and with the hopes of, of making more money. That's it's, it's, it's a very, very, uh, I think, challenging thing to watch for those of us who grew up uh, with spaceflight being something that's done primarily by states, right? The mm -hmm. primary entities that until pretty recently had the capital and resources to build and maintain space programs. So it's very, very different. And I think that there's a different kind of different kind of meritocracy at work here, right? You have astronauts who have, like you said, trained their entire lives. They also have to be um, perfect physical specimens in order to be able to qualify. If you have the slightest little defect like a heart arrhythmia or perhaps something like ADHD or some other kind of uh, condition that makes you slightly neuroatypical, it's very, very, very hard to become an astronaut. Whereas uh, uh, the astronauts who flew on Sunday, or rather the, the, the passengers who flew on Sunday um, into outer space and other private individuals who have flown in the past, they may not have the same kinds of standards that are necessary to uh, become an astronaut pilot or an astronaut scientist, they instead just need to have enough money and enough resources to be able to say, this is something that I want to do. This is what I want to spend my money doing. And um, this Virgin flight is the next marker that that, uh, that, that having money rather than having uh, a particular kind of uh, set of skills and attributes uh, can make you um, viable for space flight. You can join our conversation as we talk about the billionaire space race today. You just heard Lisa Ruth Rand, assistant professor of history at Caltech. Also with us from the Atlantic, Marina Corwin, who's a staff writer there. The number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. If you want to see a photo of uh, this uh, spacecraft that uh, Richard Branson's uh, company um, built for this flight, uh, you can actually go to Twitter at Where We Live or on our website, WMPR.org where we live. So Marina, uh, Branson made it first, and now Jeff Bezos is going up into space. Tell us about uh, his venture. Yeah, it's definitely a big month for commercial spaceflight, that's for sure. Um, so Jeff Bezos was actually supposed to fly first on um, July 20th, as you said, the, the anniversary of the first moon landing. And he was going to make the trip um, to the edge of just past another edge of space uh, on Blue Origins, um, rocket. And that system is a bit more traditional, you know, big rocket goes up, uh, releases a capsule with the passengers inside. They float around for a couple of minutes in, in glorious weightlessness and then parachute back down to the surface. Um, and Blue Origin made a, a really big deal of that. And then um, Branson just kind of snuck in there and was like, actually, I'm going to go first. And um, Branson wasn't supposed to fly with Virgin Galactic for at least another flight, um, you know, and, and the flight that took place on Sunday was actually a test flight. So it was a bit of a gamble to kind of get in there and do it because space flight is dangerous. Um, 
And so Jeff Bezos is next. And um, he reportedly, Bezos, was not entirely thrilled about that because, um, you know, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are going to be direct competitors uh, for the coming years because they are offering customers a very similar experience, a few minutes of weightlessness, and they're going to be competing um, you know, on price, on experience, on all kinds of things. And so um, I think it kind of took the wind out of Jeff Bezos's sales to be second. But it is going to be an exciting flight because um, on board with Bezos is going to be a, a woman, a pilot named Wally Funk. And she has wanted to be an astronaut since 1961. Um, you know, she even passed many of the same tests that the male astronauts who were training to fly with NASA passed. But at the time, NASA wasn't letting women fly. She is 82. So that's going to be exciting. You know, for her, this is a real gift. She's a real person who's wanted to do this, and she's very deserving of it. Let's talk more about Wally Funk, a woman who had trained uh, to be part of NASA missions. Uh, Lisa Ruth, I understand that um, you know a lot about Wally Funk. Tell us about her. Well, I was fortunate enough to interview Wally Funk some 17 years ago. Uh, and at the time, she told me that she sets a goal every single year, a short-term goal every single year that she always meets and that she has one long-term goal to get to outer space. So I'm really thrilled to see that she's going to meet that goal at long last at age 82. Um, Wally Funk, as Marina said, was one of 13 women who took private tests to determine whether or not women could be fit for spaceflight. They were the same tests that were offered or that were that were uh, given to the first uh, male Mercury astronauts in the uh, early 1960s. And uh, as Marina also stated, eventually those women were, they were never expected to fly, but they did pass the tests with flying colors. And a few of them did attempt to try to uh, change the, uh, to try to, uh, to, to gain that status, to be able to be astronauts. It went as far as a congressional subcommittee hearing uh, but uh, their efforts were were shut down pretty quickly, and it would take another two decades before Sally Ride would fly um, on the space shuttle in uh, 1984. So Wally Funk was very much a pioneer, and she has wanted to do this for a very, very long time, and she will finally do so in a, in a couple of days. Well, see, she's someone we should definitely learn more about. Thank you both for telling us more about Wally Funk. Um, you know, we've mentioned Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. We know also we know that Elon Musk also has a space company too, SpaceX, and they've been doing a lot and working with NASA, uh, helping uh, uh, get uh, astronauts uh, up to the International Space Station. Marina, what can you tell us about Elon Musk's uh, ambitions in space? Right. So. Uh... Actually, I've been waiting for him to chime in and say, actually, I'm going to be first and, and beat them all. But that didn't happen. And I say that because Elon Musk and with SpaceX, um, he, he put people into orbit uh, last year and he's done it a couple more times since. And when I say into orbit, I mean that SpaceX has launched on NASA's behalf um, astronauts to the International Space Station. And that journey requires going way beyond this edge of space that Branson and Bezos are bickering about and actually looping around the planet. Um, and so that's a completely different game. You know, there's a couple of billionaire space races here. You have Branson and, Be and Bezos um, racing in, in these suborbital flights. 
Um, you have Elon Musk in a different game with orbital flight. And then if you zoom out even further, you have Bezos and, and Musk competing for a NASA contract for the moon. I mean, that's a whole different story. Um, but, uh, but Elon Musk is still, you know, SpaceX is still a business. And so um, SpaceX has already sold a flight into orbit um, to a very wealthy tech entrepreneur, um, and he got to choose who to bring along with him. Um, and so that's a very different ball game. You know, a Virgin Galactic ticket costs at around two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. SpaceX hasn't said how much it's how much it is charging for its space tourism on its orbital system, but you you can guess that's probably in the millions, you know, so all of these space billionaires are in the business of putting people into space. They're doing it a little bit differently, um, but it's it's definitely going to be a big year for this entire business because they're all involved and, and they're all reaching kind of like the finish line in their various programs. Marina, did you say that to get on Branson's spacecraft, you need $250,000? Yes. Um, do you do you have that? I don't have that. I think this this gets it to uh, what Lisa Ruth was saying mm-hmm. earlier that this is going to be a a rich person's game. Um, sign that's me up a lot on my public. Sign me up on my public radio <laughs> salary. Um, I can't. I'm sorry. I'm laughing, but it is kind of uh, comical to think about. Uh, you know, the amount of money uh, being put into these uh, missions, and uh, when we think about space tourism, who's going to be able to afford uh, these flights? Um, my guest today on Where We Live, you just heard Marina Corrin, staff writer at The Atlantic, also Lisa Ruth Rand, assistant professor of history at Caltech. We're going to talk more about space tourism, and of course, we want to take your calls, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're living in a time when wealth inequality has worsened in our country. So it's not a stretch to understand why some Americans shake their heads at Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, the wealthiest men in the world, racing to see who outshines the other in their private space endeavors. There's even a change.org petition titled, do not allow Jeff Bezos to return to Earth. Bezos plans a July 20th passenger space flight through his company, Blue Origin. Will you be watching? What do we have to gain by these latest space flights? It's been reported, as we just mentioned earlier, that to fly on Richard Branson's spacecraft will cost a quarter of a million dollars. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Alisa, can you give us some more history on space tourism? Again, we're focusing on these billionaires who are going up into space, but thinking about other famous people uh, who've gone up and, and what it means uh, for uh, this uh, development of a commercial industry. Well, you touched on something important there, which is that uh, Branson is not the first private individual to go into outer space. Um, there have been private individuals going for some time now. Um, there have been some seven private citizens who've flown to the International Space Station, provided they could uh, meet the fee, the hefty fee needed to go there. Um, the uh, first one to go was Dennis Tito, who flew in April uh, 2001 for, I believe, around $20 million, I believe was the price tag then. Um, uh, British singer Sarah Brightman was set to fly to the station. She didn't end up going. Um, and um, Anusha Ansari of the Ansari X Prize flew in 2006. So there have been quite a few people who've been able to uh, garner the money to be able to fly um, into outer space. Again, uh, just using the, the means of having the right, the right amount of money, the right amount of cash flow to be able to go. Uh, but I believe what's different here is that Virgin and uh, Blue Origin, which is Bezos's company, are specifically meant to cater to space tourists. Um, and the price tag will be much lower than those millions and millions of dollars uh, that the initial first space tourists had to come to had to had to, had to bring up in order to fly. Um, so there is this intent to commercialize space tourism to broaden its access. But again, I, I'm in the same boat as. As you and Marina, Lucy, I certainly don't have uh, the, the resources on my salary to be able to uh, fly into outer space. But I think that the hope is to eventually uh, make, make it more accessible. But this does, again, kind of challenge um, what uh, Richard Branson said, this idea of space belongs to all of us. Well, belongs to all of who? It belongs to a certain kind of person who has the kind of money to be able to go there uh, and in many cases, some of these some of these hyper wealthy uh, space entrepreneurs have kind of really um, not read the room well when talking about uh, you know making space available to all because ultimately when they throw up a number like you know or I, I believe Elon Musk at one point said that anyone who can afford to buy a house can afford to fly to Mars eventually on his spaceship, but not everyone can afford to buy a house. So um, ultimately, um, it's, it's, it remains to be seen. Um, who space is going to be for if these new commercial, specifically tourism uh, companies actually do uh, take hold and start to expand. Well, Lisa Ruth, you and I may have a chance. I also read a Japanese billionaire is going to pick eight people, eight members of the public for a SpaceX moon trip in 2023. So I'll send you that link. We can sign up. <laughs> 
Marita, I wanted to go back to you when we talk about uh, the money that's uh, that these uh, billionaires are spending, but they're also getting U.S. taxpayer payer dollars, right? With Elon Musk and his contracts with NASA. Right. That's that's true. Um, you know, I sometimes I hear or see people say, you know, SpaceX, Blue Origin, they're really leapfrogging NASA. You know, NASA is no longer the most exciting name in the game because these companies are taking over. Um, and that is not entirely true because many space private space companies would not exist without NASA, you know, whether that's a history of technology and, and, and in some cases just plain funding. Um, you know, for example, when when SpaceX launched two NASA astronauts into orbit um, last spring, that was part of a NASA funded program that was years in the making. And so while NASA today is going to pay SpaceX, basically going to be another customer and pay SpaceX to launch its its employees to the International Space Station, NASA helped make that program by giving SpaceX uh, a billion dollar, several billion dollar contract. You know, this is not happening in a vacuum. Um, and actually, so I have I have Twitter open and I saw that someone tweeted at the show about uh, our discussion about the costs, you know, pointing out that costs are going to be high for now until we figure out how to do space flight at scale. And thanks, Dave Blodgett, for the question. And that's 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 the goal of Branson and Bezos and Musk. You know, as you said, if you can afford to buy a house, you can go to Mars. I cackled at that because I can't afford to buy a house. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that is that is the goal. And I think that that's, you know, it's hard to predict when that will be feasible, you know, when it will be affordable enough for a wider group of people to go. And I think at the end of the day, if you're trying to reach orbit and you're trying to reach the moon, and that's another part of, you know, commercializing this effort, I can't imagine that costing less than a couple of million dollars just because of how difficult and how resource intense that is. You know, so perhaps I could see some orbital flights getting cheaper. I think that's that we will go in that direction, but I don't think that it's going to be, you know, as widely accessible as air travel is for people today. We've talked about the difficulty and the few that can afford it today, Marina and Lisa Ruth, but just the idea that space travel is really dangerous. Marina, you've covered uh, this for a while. What has happened in recent years with Virgin Galactic, uh, Richard Branson's company, as they were testing and developing spacecrafts? Right, you're right. Spaceflight, um, you know, whether you're going just beyond the edge of space or whether you're orbiting the Earth, whether you're going all the way to the International Space Station, it is dangerous. And, you know, on Sunday, um, the mood in New Mexico at Spaceboard America, where this Virgin Galactic mission was taking off, it was really um, buoyant. And, you know, there, were, there was music. Uh, it, it felt like I don't know. It just felt like a show, like a celebration. And that's not the vibe that I want people to come away with. You know, I don't want people to get the false impression that spaceflight is routine because it's not. Um, and, you know, private space companies have had their ups and downs throughout development, including Virgin Galactic. Um, in 2007, uh, there was an explosion during testing that uh, killed three contractors who were working on the effort. Um, and then more recently in 2014, a test pilot was actually killed um, during a test flight when the space plane um, broke apart in midair. Uh, you know, in 2014 uh, was not that long ago. And at the time, Richard Branson, um, you know, he wrote in his memoir that he had to do a bit of soul searching and he asked people around them, you know, should I keep going? Is it worth it? And he ultimately decided that he 
he is that it is, and it's different for companies like Blue Origin, SpaceX, and Virgin Galactic because you know with with the space shuttle program, which was eventually retired in part because it was dangerous. Um, you know, private companies have a different calculation to make. You know, yes, they they um, they have benefited from taxpayer funding, but at the end of the day, they're their own entities, and if they suffer a tragedy, if a paying customer, God forbid, um, you know, loses their life they could, you know, do that soul searching and decide we're going to come back. They don't have the same obligations to the public about, you know, safety and optics and things like that. So when we think about the regulatory agencies that govern safety, that's uh, not going to happen necessarily with these private companies, Marina? Yeah, that's kind of a, we're definitely in new territory. So the FAA is the agency that approves uh, launch licenses for these companies, but the FAA is responsible for protecting public safety in the sense that, you know, it wants to protect people and property on the ground. Um, the regulatory framework for protecting space tourists um, is, is not really there. You know, it's kind of catching up to what these companies are doing. And so, you know, when people fly with these companies, they're really you know, signing up for a risky endeavor and, you know, I'm sure signing waivers and um, all kinds of documents. And I think what we're going to see in the next couple of years is regulation catching up to these milestones in private spaceflight. Let's talk more about that. Uh, Lisa Ruth, uh, many of us remember the tragic Challenger disaster in 1986. I was in school when it happened, uh, and there was that teacher, Kristen McAuliffe, on board as part of the Teacher in Space program, bringing uh, civilians in space uh, through training by NASA. There's also ideas for journalists and, and artists in space, but when, there's, when, there, when there are these tragedies, whether it was a Challenger and then later the Columbia explosion, people start to wonder if if this is important to be sending up non-essential civilians uh, because it's dangerous? Yes, uh, I, I think that there is, again, this is this becomes, actually, I think this brings up an interesting question of who gets to be, get the designation of astronaut, right? Because astronauts have always taken really high risks and the risk has been, I think, arguably worth it for most of them. They've worked their entire lives uh, to fly in outer space and, uh, you know, uh, when a tragedy happens, uh, it's it's horrifying to those of us on the ground and horrifying to the families left behind. Uh, but the astronauts have taken on that risk and have chosen to fly uh, uh, in order to achieve that goal and in, in order to, to kind of move forward with space research. Um, but one thing I noticed while watching the uh, feed on Sunday of the Virgin Galactic flight was that um, at least from the Virgin feed, the passengers were all referred to as astronauts. And um, the uh, the two um, pilots, or they were called pilots, Dave McKay and Mike Masucci, who were the ones who were flying Unity to the edge of space and back, they were referred to as pilots and their passengers as astronauts. So I think there's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting kind of uh, a bit of mystique kind of at play here that's also really up in the air. What what does it take to be an astronaut? When are you a pilot? When are you? And, and this this also, uh, I think, also plays into this little bit of, uh, of competition between Bezos and Branson about whether or not one of them went to space or not uh, in that tweet that Bezos sent out saying that um, that uh, uh, the new Shepard rocket by flying above 62 miles that none of the people who flew will have asterisks by their name as astronauts. Well, 
there's a precedent for that. Um, there were pilots, the pilots who flew NASA's X-15 rocket plane program in the 60s. Uh, uh, they, a few of them who were active duty Air Force received decorations as astronauts because the Air Force doesn't need it flying above 50 miles, it's flying in space. But NASA didn't confer that decoration onto its pilots until about 2005 after the uh, first flight, uh, or rather the, the the first crewed private space flight, which was uh, Spaceship One, which took place the year before, which incidentally followed a similar model to um, the Virgin spacecraft flying uh, kind of like, I love that pair of dolphins idea that Marina <laughs> came up with that visual. Um, so um, you see that not only is this a matter of kind of, again, figuring out what's, <laughs> what does it mean to be an astronaut right now? Um, what does it mean to take on that risk? And uh, I think that so I think there's more to that than just how high do they go and risk are they what risk are they taking? Um, when we fly commercial airlines, we're not pilots, we're passengers. And uh, again, it, it'll be interesting to see how even that honorific really um, uh, takes form as more and more people presumably may be able to enter outer space as passengers. You're hearing Lisa Ruth Rand here on Where We Live. She's Assistant Professor of History at Caltech. Also on Zoom with us, Marina Corrin, staff writer at The Atlantic. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Mary is calling in from Hartford. Mary, go ahead. Oh, doesn't look look like Mary was there, but I I can see what her question was, and I'll I'll mention this uh, to you, Lisa Ruth. Um, She was curious about how much carbon dioxide is being pumped into the atmosphere atmosphere from all these space tourist flights and the damage uh, that it can cause. What what can you say about that? I actually don't think I have good numbers for that. Uh, Marina might. Um, I think that, you know, ultimately it's a matter of um, aggregation, right? A matter of how much total, how many flights. If, If this does scale up, there may be an impact with emissions, just like commercial aircraft, just like cars, that the more you have on the road or in the air, it's going to have an impact. But I think it does it does remain to be seen. And I, I have not yet looked up that data. Marina, maybe you have. Oh, I have. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I have not. And I'm not, you know, a climate reporter. But I think to the question of scale, as you pointed out, Lisa Ruth, you mean uh, Virgin Galactic plans to do two more flights this year. So that would be a total of four flights this year and compare that to the number of um, airline flights, it's (laughs) probably a tiny, tiny fraction. So I think this might be a question to think about when, if and when this business scales to the level of air travel. We also got another tweet from a listener. Barbara writes, many people question what can seem like a mutually exclusive choice, money spent on space travel versus social causes. But has anyone analyzed what companies, suppliers, individuals benefit from Branson and Bezos' investments, Marina? Right. That's a great question. And so, um, yeah, I don't like when I talk about Bezos and Branson taking joyrides to space, I'm talking about, you know, what they personally are doing. For example, on the Virgin Galactic flight, Branson's formal role was to test the private astronaut experience. Um, And I think that's just a fancy way of saying having a great time. Um, But, you know, these are also, these are very rich people, but they're also, you know, philanthropists. They obviously have, um, you know, they run companies and then the way they run those companies can be debated, but they do, um, give money back. So, for example, the uh, the Blue Origin flight coming up with Bezos, um, 
It'll be Bezos, his brother, Wally Funk, who we've discussed on the show today, and a fourth mystery person who hasn't been announced yet, but who bid on the seat to go along with Bezos and this other and the crew. And um, that bid was $28 million, which is a crew crazy amount of money. And um, Blue Origin is going to donate those funds to um, their their branch of that supports, uh, you know, STEM education. And uh, you know, one of the passengers who purchased a SpaceX flight for later this year, um, he is going to donate the proceeds from, you know, a similar type of um, uh, auction or just like money raising effort to St. Jude's Children Hospital, you know, but so these rich men are, are, are paying it forward in that sense, but you kind of have to hope that every, you know, wealthy person who flies decides to do something like that. You know, there's nothing that we can do here on the ground. We just, you know, there might be a crew next year on SpaceX that, um, you know, is, is, is can afford that flight, but doesn't want to, you know, distribute that wealth in any way. So we have to leave it up to these very wealthy individuals to do that kind of thing. We're going to continue talking after the break. You're listening to Where We Live with us on Zoom. Marina Corrin, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Lisa Ruth Rand, assistant professor of history at Caltech. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we talk to two candidates running for mayor in New Haven. Incumbent Justin Elliger is just completing his first term in office, while challenger Karen Bois walton has built a record of her own during a decade and a half as the leader of the city's housing authority. Elm City residents, which candidate do you support? You can join us that show tomorrow. Now, today we're talking about space exploration and the private companies who are jockeying to take tourists to space. On Zoom with us, Marina Corwin, staff writer at the Atlantic, and Lisa Ruth Rand, assistant professor of history at Caltech. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Lisa Ruth, I understand uh, when we talk about these private companies and uh, human space travel, that's one thing that they're interested in. But when we focus on on SpaceX, I think there's a, a project called Starlink. Uh, can you talk about that and, and what some concerns are around it? Sure. So uh, Starlink is what's known as a mega constellation of satellites. So uh, a a network of satellites, thousands of satellites kind of strung into a a particular network that will um, allow for uh, for a pretty broad geographical range of coverage on the ground below. Um, And it's meant to provide uh, Internet access to places where uh, there is uh, low access to remote areas um, on the ground below. Um, And uh, SpaceX has already launched uh, many, many, many of these satellites. Every time, every launch, every every Starlink launch, there's uh, 60 or more satellites packed into the rocket. Um, And there's been some uh, pushback, particularly by astronomers concerned that, uh, particularly right uh, right after launch, that these Starlink satellites, uh, which are which reflect light from the sun, um, are visible from the ground. They might uh, 
uh, disturb astronomers' efforts to uh, observe far away naturally occurring objects by confusing those with uh, very nearby artificially uh, artificially created objects. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, a very public debate about Starlink, uh, and it's one that uh, has a long history within the space industry. Uh, this isn't the first time that astronomers have been concerned about shiny satellites in outer space. They've been concerned about it from the very beginning of the space age, um, particularly uh, astronomers uh, back in the early 1960s raised an almost identical argument against a project known uh, initially as Project Needles and then as Project Westford, in which the United States Air Force uh, launched a test program of a, of, of a, of a, of a test of, of an experimental communication satellite system that consisted of hundreds of millions of tiny copper fibers that could bounce uh, radio signals from one spot on the ground to another. And I think what's interesting about the difference between uh, Westford and Starlink is that uh, with the public outcry, like we've mentioned, like we've discussed earlier in, in this conversation today, um, the US government did listen to those concerns, they altered the payload to, to uh, Westford to make sure that the uh, little copper fibers would re-enter within a short period of time so that in case there were any unexpected consequences that they would be short-lived. Um, and uh, in the case of Starlink, uh, while SpaceX is committed to doing some testing to kind of reduce the reflective, the reflectiveness of the Starlink satellites, ultimately they're continuing to launch again, exponentially more and more satellites without uh, shifting um, the composition or the coatings on those satellites. And so the, 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 un the potential unintended consequences uh, could, could continue to grow. So there's kind of a difference as, as Marina was discussing, right, uh, in terms of uh, accountability. Um, there's regulation, yes, but there's a different kind of accountability when it's a, uh, when it's a public uh, space project versus a private one. So let's talk about some of the future space missions. We've been focused on uh, what uh, some of the wealthiest men in the world are doing uh, with their money and the development of spacecraft, uh, potentially taking uh, humans uh, into space as well. Uh, but uh, Marina, when we talk about what NASA has been doing in terms of the moon and then eventually Mars with collaborations with SpaceX. Yes. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to talk about what NASA is doing next without also talking about SpaceX and Blue Origin. Um, and what NASA wants to do next is to take people back to the moon again for the first time since 1972. Um, and the way they're going to do that is with these contractors. Um, and there was a bit of a controversy earlier this spring because, uh, you know, NASA basically asks contractors to bid on what the space agency wants to do. And in this case, it was, uh, you know, they asked people to bid on landing technology that would help deliver American astronauts to the surface of the moon. Um, SpaceX put a bid in, so did Blue Origin, along with a couple of other longtime NASA contractors. And in the end, NASA went with SpaceX. Um, and that was a big surprise to some people because NASA usually um, tries to go with two contractors because, you know, it's always it's good to have a backup plan. Um, and also they want to foster competition in, uh, you know, the American private sector. So NASA picked SpaceX. Um, Blue Origin was really upset, uh, formally contested that decision. And now that whole kind of process is 
on hold for the moment um, while they figure things out. But I think it is accurate to say that when NASA takes its astronauts to the moon again, and the agency has said that this crew will include the first woman to go to the moon and the first person of color. So this is going to be a very different mission than the one we saw in 1969 and then also into the 70s. Um, but when NASA goes to the moon again, it's going to be with one of these companies. Uh, Lisa Ruth, uh, what's your take on these uh, upcoming space missions? I know in the past and where we live, we've talked to some women astronauts like Kayla Barron, who's part of the Artemis team. Uh, talk through uh, what uh, Marina has shared and some of your observations. Well, going to the moon, going back to the moon uh, is, is going to be a very interesting affair, I think, in terms of, of the legal aspects. So, um, the Artemis Accords were recently signed by a small group of nations. Uh, last year, uh, the former president put out a, an executive order claiming that you know, the free market would basically reign on the moon, um, that, uh, the, uh, that the moon as part of this broader um, province of all mankind as set out by the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 is going to need to be uh, changed in order to allow uh, private companies to exploit the resources of the moon. If we're going, the moon is going to become a place where human beings don't just visit, but stay for longer periods of time, that um, the, the the treaty, that rather the terms of the treaty need to be uh, um, kind of rethought and that new agreements need to be adjusted in order to allow for uh, private companies to, uh, to, to basically own pieces of the moon, uh, which is something that's been um, really a, a point of contention since the 1970s with the rise and fall of the, the Moon Treaty, for example, um, uh, we're, we're going to see, uh, especially given the, the, the outsized power of specifically private individuals in shaping the political and the actual landscape of outer space and the Moon, um, we could see uh, some, some kind of potentially um, tricky, I guess, to, 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 to hedge my bets on how to, how to frame it, some tricky efforts to uh, to extend the free market to the moon that uh, could have some some pretty important consequences to that celestial body, but also to this broader idea of space being a place for all that actually that parts of space can be owned uh, by individuals or by companies. Uh, Marina, what, what excites you about the next few months and years as we hear about these uh, different uh, missions and projects? You know, we had a listener say that deployment of private capital has always preceded public investment. No Wright Brothers would be no NASA, and we should take the bigger view. What's your take? Uh, my take is that I think, uh, yeah, I hear this a lot, and I think that my take is that I can hold two thoughts uh, in my mind at once. You know, I can try to hold some of these space billionaires uh, accountable and point out, you know, what they're doing and why. And at the same time, I can still, I mean, I've been down to Cape Canaveral for rocket launches before. I watched the Falcon Heavy launch a Tesla into space um, in 2018. And while, you know, there, there's a lot that you can say about what it means that there's a private company launching a car into space now, you know, however many years, you know, after NASA launched a golden record into space, which is a very different uh, energy. Um, at the same time, I can be completely amazed by the rocket launch. It's truly amazing to wit witness one and it is a feat of engineering that, um, you know, is a testament to the talent of the engineers and technicians and scientists that these companies hire. So I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think it's important to be realistic when it comes to space travel and what it means for everyone. 
Thank you, Marina Corwin, staff writer at The Atlantic. Uh, Lisa Ruth, did you want to close? Give us your thoughts. Uh, are you excited for the future? I'm excited for the future, but I also feel like it's important to remember uh, what in many ways this new surge in private space says about these vast gulfs of inequality in America and the world. Um, in uh, 1969, just before the Apollo 11 launch, uh, Ralph Abernathy and the Poor People's Campaign held a march uh, at Cape Canaveral. Protester carry, protesters carried signs that read things like $12 a day to feed an astronaut, we could feed a child for $8. And they met uh, in the middle of a field with uh, NASA Administrator Thomas Paine, who said, you know, if we could solve the problems of poverty in the United States by not pushing the button to launch men to the moon tomorrow, we would not push that button. And now we're seeing the same kind of, I mean, it never really ended, right? There's always been this inequality, but it's just extended uh, and expanded. So uh, I guess the thing that I want to watch and that I want to leave with is this idea of what um, what would say um, a, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson say if they were confronted by the Poor People's Campaign? How would they respond to that call for a better use of resources or a way to make the space program uh, or rather a pub private space program and these need for this need for uh, public change, how those two can coincide, how we can, like Marina said, hold those two thoughts in, in our heads at once and move forward. Lisa Ruth Rand, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Assistant Professor of History at Caltech. We appreciate your time today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. And Marina Corrin, staff writer at The Atlantic, will be tweeting out some links to your great reporting. Marina, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. Today's show is produced by Carmen Baskoff. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can listen to Where We Live anytime. Just download us on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Back tomorrow.